If you're in the battle for the Lord and right, keep on the firing line. If you win, my brother, surely you must fight, keep on the firing line. There are many dangers that we all must face, if we die fighting it is no disgrace. Coward in the service, he will find no place, so keep on the firing line. You must fight, be brave against all evil, never run nor even lag behind. If you would win for God and the right, just keep on the firing line. When we get to heaven, brother, we'll be glad. Keep on the firing line. How we'll praise the Savior for the call we had. Keep on the firing line. When we see the souls that we have helped to win, leading them to Jesus from the paths of sin, with a shout of welcome we will all march in, so keep on the firing line. You must fight, be brave against all evil, never run nor even lag behind. If you would win for God and the right, just keep on the firing line. You must fight, be brave against all evil, never run nor even lag behind. If you would win for God and the right, just keep on the firing line. If you would win for God and the right, just keep on the firing line. Firing line, amen. That's a perfect song for today, too. I was listening to the fellows get ready and kind of warm up back there earlier today, this morning, and I said, hey, guys, this is a perfect song for the message today. The Lord definitely knows what he's doing. He's definitely got a game plan, amen. Take your Bible, if you would, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 14 today, and then we'll uh, kind of go from there, but... Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 1. You might be able to identify with what's going on here in the passage slightly. As we begin reading in chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, 
persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch of Iconium at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But the evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. We know that the book of 2 Timothy was written by a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, of course, was a great man of God, and he ultimately went around uh, uh, preaching the Word of God and having the privilege of starting a number of ministries and churches. One of the young men that he had the privilege of reaching out to and ultimately mentoring and encouraging was this young man named Timothy. Timothy, he would call his son in the faith, literally implying that he was as though he was naturally born to him. We know that he wasn't his actual uh, biological father. But the implication is that he loved him and embraced him as his own child. And then spiritually speaking, he was referred to as a son in the faith, meaning that he must have had a part in or actually was involved in leading him to Christ. And so the Apostle Paul was vested. He had an, he had an investment in the life of Timothy. And Timothy ultimately ends up in a place called Ephesus, where he's going to pastor the church, where the... Um, Apostle Paul would, would have him, and he's now writing him a letter. He's trying to address issues in the church, trying to help Timothy as a young pastor to, to do it in a way that will honor God, that will ultimately bring glory to him. And so in this particular passage, he's warning Timothy, he's allowing Timothy to under, or giving him some understanding about the times, the, the days in which they live. See, just because it was years and years ago doesn't mean that things were so much better than they are today. Sometimes we get the idea that it's only gotten worse. From the start of time to the end of time, there's never been a... Uh, it's always been better. People have had more character. Uh, there wasn't as many problems. The sin wasn't as rampant. But the fact is, is that in the church, early on, there were a number of issues that were being addressed. Matter of fact, because many of them had been involved in paganism and, 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 and worshiping other gods, there were all kinds of wicked and evil things that took place in the lives of these men and women that were coming to Christ. There were things that you and I would look at and say, that is repulsive, that is disgusting, that is sickening. And yet that is what was going on in the church. And Timothy here, dealing with these Gentiles that had come to Jesus Christ, is facing some of this opposition. He's facing some of these obstacles. And he's trying to get a handle on it and deal with it in a proper way. And the Apostle Paul writes him these letters in order to encourage him in the faith and in the work of God. And so we arrive here at 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to note a couple things from the passage today. First of all, and again, this is by way of introduction, it's not the message, but we note that there's the reality in verse 1. The reality is, as he says, this know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Now, I just want you to understand that we are many thousand, two thousand years removed from that day, basically. I want you to know that uh, perilous times uh, will come. Now, someone says, well, we're in the midst of them. Yeah, I, I think that we are. Matter of fact, he was in the midst of perilous times. Because the last days have been since the time of Paul. And let me tell you that things are not good right now. And that we are experiencing some difficulties and some struggles. Some growing, some pains in our culture and in our, our world. And even in the church in which we now live. 
But he says, listen, you just need to know that. That's the reality. It's going to happen. Don't be so surprised. And then we see here in verse 2 through 5, we see the reason for this. You know, sometimes we ask the question, we say, why in the world does God, does God let that happen to someone? Why does he permit the evil to go on? Why does he let someone shoot someone or kill someone or hurt or, or, or do some horrible, heinous crime to them? Why does God do that? Well, we have the reason here why this perilous times shall come. And perilous times obviously refer to the kind of days in which we live, I'm sure. So why is it like that today? How come it seems all these horrible things happen in our world today? Well, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Well, that ought to wake us up as parents. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, yes, but denying the power thereof. You want to know why we're in the mess we're in today? Because of man. Not because of God. I mean, don't you see that in the passage? We see the reality of it, that perilous days shall come. Why are the perilous days going to come? I'll tell you why. Because men shall be. See, that's the real problem today. It's you and it's me. It's the world we live in. It's the, the atomic nature that, we now, uh, that we've possessed. And praise God, we've been changed and as a direct result of God's regenerating work in our life. We understand that. But the world hasn't. And so we see the, the repercussions of that. That atomic nature, that sinful nature. We see the result now. The reality of it, the reason for it. Note this result. As a result of man being the way he is. Notice this in verse 6. It says, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers lusts. These, notice, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. They proceed no further, and so forth, so on. Now, notice all those things. First of all, it says, here's the result of this. Folks are going to be deceiving. They're going to lead others astray. People are going to learn, but they're not going to come to the truth. They're going to have all this knowledge and amass all this information, but they'll never come to the truth. Isn't that interesting? A spirit of defiance toward authority, and even a defiance... Against the word of God. Notice in the passage, he goes on to say that they resist the truth. Resisting something's different than avoiding it even. To resist it means to push it away. To get rid of it. And indeed, that's exactly the state we find mankind in today. In many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, at least those of our media. Resisting the truth. Not just denying it, not just avoiding it, but resisting it. Praise God, there are people every single week that we knock on doors that don't resist it. There are still people that are still searching for real truth. He goes on to say, men of corrupt minds. 
that men will have corrupt minds. They'll possess a total disregard for the truth even. Now, those are the results of that aspect of mankind. Being lovers of themselves and covetous, boasters, proud, all of those things. That's what comes out of it. We see evidence of that in our culture, it seems. But then we have the reminder here in verse 10 through 12. Now the Apostle Paul is going to share some things with Timothy. He says, he says now, thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecution, affliction. You've known that. Paul's saying, listen, in spite of it all, I want you to know, in spite of it all, I've remained faithful. In spite of it all, I continue to fight the battle and I run the race. I didn't give up on God and guess what? God never gave up on me. And he says, through it all, the Lord delivered me. Delivered me through it all. And he's saying to Timothy, yes, there's some perilous times. Sure, mankind will be characterless and moralless. Obviously, that is the truth. You see it around you, Timothy. But don't you quit. Don't you give up. Don't you realize that, that you are able to overcome. You see my life. You see my witness. You can do the same. God can deliver and will deliver you also. And so he shares a resolve with him, verse 13 and 14. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the same things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned. Don't expect, he says, or look for things to get better, Timothy. Don't fool yourself into thinking somehow that just because you now pastor the great church at Ephesus, that it ought to just all fall into place and everybody's going to just fall down at your feet and say, you're the greatest pastor. And boy, we need to change our culture and life needs to be turned upside down here. We've got to do it. He says, no, not even in the church. Don't expect that in the church and certainly don't expect that out in the world. Because let me tell you, Timothy, he says... Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Worse and worse. Don't place your hopes, Timothy, in mankind or his efforts. But rather, continue in the things that you have learned and know concerning Christ and his ways. The eyes of the believer cannot be fixed on fallen man. My friend, don't you get caught in a trap of believing somehow that the next presidential candidate can save our country. Please don't, don't be so foolish to think that this is an economic problem we face in America. It is a moral problem. Righteousness exalteth the nation. The fact is there is no righteousness in the White House. There's no righteousness in our Senate or our, our, our Congress in that regard as far as a whole now I'm talking. There are a few saved men and women, I'm sure. But the fact is, is that the emphasis is not on a Christian value. It's not on biblical morality. We have totally disregarded the Word of God, the foundation of our nation. Don't think for a minute that the solution is in finding someone that can fix our economy or fix our foreign policy or somehow fix our social problems. The reality is, is that godliness is what we need in America. And Timothy found that out in his culture. Paul knew that in his day. 
He realized that, listen, Timothy, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Don't think somehow that fixing your society to fixing your culture is the key. No, fixing hearts is the real goal. We have to put our eyes on an unfailing word of God and its author, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, summarizes this thought that we find here in Timothy. Take your Bible, look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now. Again, we see this passage in Timothy and we are encouraged by it. And yet, we also are, I guess, become very sober as we think about the reality that sin is not going to continue to get less. It's, it's going to seem to grow. <laughs> Now, it doesn't mean that we can't see revival in our nation. It doesn't mean we can't see revival in the hearts of mankind. That's not, that's not what I'm preaching here. I'm telling you, though, as a whole in our world. See, what we do is we like to close everything down to our little world. You know where your world stops usually? Is at the door of your home. That, that's not right for a believer. The believer's, world, the believer's motion, mentality and the believer's world ought to expand not only past his door, not only past his city, not only past his county or country. It ought to be concerning the whole world. Because, see, we are to reach the world with the gospel. We should have a worldview that's biblical, yes, and we should apply it in our life. We should be concerned about others around the world, not just me and mine. And as American Christians, Christians in America... We have a tendency to look at everything as we read the Bible through the eyes of an American. We say, okay, well, our nation is in a bad shape. So, uh, you, know, uh, you know, or our nation, we, we couldn't have revival because look how wicked we are and it's only going to get worse. God's looking at it all across the board, the whole world. Do you know they're having revival in the Philippines still? Do you realize that? I mean, then again, on the other hand, in Libya, Christians are being beheaded. Do you realize that that's part of it too? So we got revival on this side of the, the world. We have, on this end of the world, we have people being beheaded in America. We have a, a church that is, 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 is uh, in this um, state of stubbornness, if you will. We call it backsliding. And, and we look at things from our perspective. We always see as I knock doors and people are getting harder. Well, that's true, but that doesn't mean that God can't do something in America because the world's much bigger than America. So, oh yeah, over here, revival. Over here, people are having their heads cut off. In America, we seem to be in a decline spiritually and morally. We are. However, the fact is, is that God's not done with us, even though the truth is, is that as a whole, in the world today, evil men are going to become more and more. They're going to wax worse and worse. But let me tell you something. In Akron, Ohio, there can be a revival today. In, in the United States of America, we can still have revival today. Don't you dare buy into this idea. Well, it's the last days. It's over with. Hey, it may be hundreds of years before Christ returns. I'm not throwing in the towel yet. 1 Corinthians 9.24. Notice as he summarizes this passage in Timothy Eve. And, I, and I'm not saying it directly, that doctrinally it goes to there. But I see it kind of summarized here in 1 Corinthians 9. Notice what it says in verse 24 as he speaks to the Corinthian church. He says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. 
And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertain, so fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. In this particular passage, Paul likens the Christian life to a race. Now, in Timothy, he's telling him, perilous times are going to come. It's going to get rough. It's going to be difficult. You're going to have obstacles, and you're going to have things to have, you're going to have to overcome. But let me tell you something. You've seen my life. You've seen what God's doing with me in spite of it all. God's continued to deliver me through it all. He'll deliver you, Timothy. He'll enable you to fight the fight. He'll enable you to run the race. That's basically what he's telling Timothy. And we see here that he told the Corinthians the exact same thing, basically. Just outside the city of Corinth, there on the plain, the Tyrrhenial Greek Games were held. You say, oh, I know those. No, not the Olympic Games. These were a different games. These were the Tyrrhenial Greek Games. These games were famous, though. They were extremely famous as well. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians at this point in his life, these games overshadowed the Olympian Games even. They were even bigger than the Olympian Games. And we even to this day participate in the Olympian Games. We call them the Olympics. The Corinthians were extremely proud of these games that, that were taking place right outside their city. Matter of fact, they kind of looked at it as a means of pride because it put their city on the map. Everybody knew. It, 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 you know, everybody understood. You know, just like years ago, we used to call this the, the rubber capital of the world, Akron was. Because there were thousands and thousands and thousands of, of people employed by the rubber factories. I mean, we we're putting out tires left and right. We put out Corsair airplanes during the war. We did all kinds of things that had to do with manufacturing. And uh, Akron was a boom town. And boy, they got a reputation for being the rubber capital of the world. Well, these guys were known for their games. And so it's so appropriate, it seems to me, that Paul, when he begins to write about the Christian life, pictures it as a race. These Corinthians would fully comprehend it. They would understand it without a doubt because they saw it on a regular basis and it was so popular in their culture. The stadium that the Corinthians were familiar with measured about 600 feet or about an eighth of a Roman mile. And Paul says to them, you run, but not only run, but race to win. It wasn't enough just to run the race. It wasn't enough just to get by. He said, you race to win the race. He understood, as all Corinthians did, that such participation would demand a tremendous amount of training. Effort, if you will. See, training requires self-control and self-denial. If, if you and I, each one of us today, was going to join the Olympics, we were going to run a race... Say we were going to run the quarter mile or the mile. Let's just make it a mile so it's really easy. You, can, you don't have to run your full speed on the mile. I'd rather run one time around full speed than four times as fast as they do. But nonetheless, let's just say we're running the mile. Let me ask you, would, you, would, would things have to change in your life if you really wanted to win the race? Do you want to know why most of us never really are healthy? Because we don't want to have to train. Pay the price. And you know what? Paul's talking to the Corinthians. He's saying, now listen, this Christian life that we live is a race. And if you truly want to win the race, and that's the goal, not just to run it, but to win it. He says it's going to cost you something. 
It's going to demand some self-denial and self-control. When a person enters that athletic contest, and they understood this very, very well, they're going to have to trim their body up. They're going to have to lose some weight. They're going to have to get some things under control. They're going to have to build their muscles and their lungs and their reflexes, and their endurance is going to have to grow. All of this is an effect, is an effect, a direct effect of a diet in their life, of, of the change of activities in their life, of the time that they're going to put forth in order to make that happen. It all costs something. And Paul wants them to understand as believers that this Christian life is a battle, that it's not going to be easy, and you're even going to afflict yourself somewhat in order to be successful at this battle and this race, and you're running it, and you've got to run to win, not just to get through it. How can you expect to win it, he says, if you don't place yourself in a disciplined program of daily preparation for usefulness for the Lord? So, then we come to the book of Hebrews. Turn there, if you would, chapter 12, verse 1. Some say that Paul is the author of Hebrews, that he was the writer of Hebrews. I, I, I can't say 100%. I, I don't really know. I, would, I believe that he probably is. I think in one day in heaven we'll realize and, and we'll learn he was. But then again, maybe not. I don't know. But it does seem to be along his line of reasoning and thinking here and... He was extremely schooled in the rabbinical uh, disciplines. So I think he could have easily written it. But notice Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. Wherefore seeing, he says, as he addresses now this race again. Wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us what? Run with patience the race that is set before us. See, we see the witness here. He says, man, there are people watching. There are people watching. There's this great cloud of witnesses there above and, let's be honest, down below. They're watching. Then there's the weight. He addresses that here as well when he says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which does so easily beset us. He's saying you need to lay some things aside. It'd be foolish to think that a runner that wants to win a race would wear weights on his ankles or on their wrists or that they'd put a backpack on with 25-pound disc in the back. You, you wouldn't do that. That'd be foolish. It'd slow you down. Now, let me ask you, would it be outside the rules to do it? Could you put weights on your ankles and run the 100-yard or 100-meter dash? Sure you could. Oh, I, excuse me. Um, we are with the uh, Olympic Committee, and we uh, want you to know you're not allowed to put those 10-pound weights on your ankles. They would never say that to you. They, they wouldn't do that to them. They'd be like, excuse me, do you, I, I'm sorry, but this is a stupid question, but do you know you have 10-pound ankles, weights on your, your, your legs there? The guy would be like, yeah. They'd be like, okay. But they, they, it's not against the rules. You say, but that'd be foolish. That'd be stupid. Exactly. And that's what the Apostle Paul's saying. He's saying, if you're going to run this race and you're going to run it to win, then listen, get rid of all those things that would hinder you or hamper you or keep you back. They may not be sin, but they're holding up the work here. They're keeping you from accomplishing or fulfilling the purpose God left you here for. And then ultimately, he says, those sins, too, that easily beset us. But nonetheless... 
We then see the work itself. Let us run with patience the race that's set before us. So we see the witness, the weight, and then the work there. Man, it's a work. We run a race. Today we face a battle, don't we? We face a battle or a race, if you will. And any race is difficult. And you know what else is difficult? Our time on earth as believers. It's not easy. To stay pure and to stay holy, stay clean. It's not easy in our world today. But if we're going to run this race, we've got to get rid of those weights. We can't allow sin even to beset us. We've got to ensure that we are in perfect running condition and health. Spiritual health. Because ultimately we're trying to not just run this race, we want to win the race. And today, we are reminded always that perilous times do exist. I mean, ISIS recently executed 30 people. 15 by beheading and 15 by a gun, shooting them. Can you imagine that? 30 people in Libya. You know, you know what they did? They won, you know who they blamed it on? The nation of the cross. You know who that is, don't you? It's funny. They, they know what we stand for and what we should believe. Sadly enough, our government's running toward their side of it. I don't get that. I, I don't understand. I don't understand that. But nonetheless, they said, you know what? We're making people pay for, for Muslim blood that's being shed in our region. And guess what? You are the demons. You are the devils. The nation of the cross. So they're shooting people and they're blaming us. Let me tell you something. That's a pretty perilous times, if you ask me. Pretty perilous times when people don't think anything of life. So much so that they can do those kind of horrible acts and deeds. A visual arts professor at the University of California, speaking of, you know, things getting worse and worse, he, he required that all his students take their final exam in his class completely in the nude. Yeah, completely in the nude, you know. Uh, now, now he, he did quantify it. He said they just had to have a candle and they had to put the candle in a certain spot to, to magnify that one area of their body that they were most confident and felt good about. It's stupidity. Immorality. Sin. That's what that is. Sin. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we're dealing with in America. These are the kind of things that you as a Christian are going to face and have to take a stand. If you're going to run your race and actually run it to win, then you've got to, you're going to have to stand. You're going to fight some battles. You're going to be looked at as a little bit off your rocker. Just this summer, a group called the Non-Human Rights Project filed the request to grant personhood, filed the request to grant personhood, now listen, to two chimps. Oh, yeah. This was on the news now. This wasn't just some little back... No, this, this took place. It's been going on, and so far, so good. They haven't granted these chimps personhood. But it, it, just the last time was just a month or so ago, they tried to pass it again. But anyway, according to this group, chimpanzees have every right to enjoy the same freedoms and liberties as humans because they have the ability to self-determinate, of self-determination. Meaning that they can think, that they can reason. That they're like humans. Well, why wouldn't they think that? We teach that in our schools. I mean, these are our cousins. You know where I'm going with this. Where does this ultimately lead us? There's not one human being on this planet that is related to that chimp. But yet, this is where we're going today. 
Just recently, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a ban on abortions after the 20-week mark. One response for the so-called Christian, ex, uh, from, from a so-called Christian. Now, this is, this is a comments from a so-called Christian. Ex, th- these comments accentuate, in my opinion, the bankrupt state that we find our morality in today in America. When a Christian, a self-proclaimed Christian, now I don't know what kind of Christianity this is. I hope and pray to God it's not yours or mine. But listen to what they said about this. Women seek abortions for many different reasons. God trusts God trusts and empowers us to make the best decisions for ourselves and our families. It's not our place to judge a woman's personal decisions. God calls us to offer compassion, respect, and support so she can be at peace with whatever decision she makes. We believe this not in spite of our faith, but because of it. You know what they're saying today? You know what the new movement is in the abortion movement for, for those that are against, uh, that are for abortion? It's that, you know, we're not, we're not called to, to judge people. You know, God's, God's not about that. God's about compassion. And so you ought to be showing some compassion. So we let people do whatever they want. And we never say anything's wrong then. What happens the next time somebody goes in their home and shoots their mom? Their, their wife, their daughter, kills them dead on the floor right in front of them. And I say, you know what? Let me just use his own words. And I say to him, God calls us to offer compassion, respect, and support so that that person can be at peace with whatever decision they made. You don't want them to feel guilty in prison. That's how ridiculous is it. This is what we're dealing with today in America. Assisted suicide is becoming more popular. And sadly enough, it's being encouraged in other countries. I mean encouraged, folks. It's not just a matter of, okay, some young man recently, and again, this is a problem because he didn't go through the proper authorities or chain. But anyway, he decided that his mom, his mom obviously was very old. She was 99. I'm not, uh, but, but she was struggling. So he killed her. And he did it because she wanted to die, because she wanted to die with dignity, and she didn't want to have to suffer, and all of those things. Okay, fine, whatever. And you know what? Uh, as a human being, I can understand somebody that's extremely suffering. And in the back of my mind, honestly, I'll be honest, I'm not going to lie to you. I could almost understand somebody saying, I, if they, I, I wouldn't know what to do. I, I, would, I wouldn't want them to suffer like that. I wouldn't want to have to see that. And I wouldn't want them to have to endure that. But we are really on shaky ground, folks. When we decide who lives and dies. And let me tell you something. It's getting to the point now where even in our own government, you better beware if you're older. You better beware if you are slow-minded. You better beware if you have some kind of incapacitation that keeps you from being considered useful in our culture, in our society. You're not able to contribute to our economy. Let me tell you something. It won't be very long that they'll start talking about euthanizing you. It's going to happen. And we can go ahead and sit back and act like it's all right and everything's fine and shut our mouths as Christians and just say, well, you know what? We can't do anything about it. Or we better and we must stand up and say, it's murder. Amen. You may not think it is and you're sitting right in this room today. But I want to encourage you to think about how God feels about it. I want you to think about what the Bible says about it. And somebody says, well, that's your opinion. No, you read the Bible and find out what God says about taking lives. 
whether it's abortion or whether it's euthanization, you look at it. There are whole cultures being euthanized right now. There are thousands and thousands of people around this globe being euthanized as a result of a crazy regime that's in place. And we'll, as Americans, turn around and say, that's wrong, and we're going to protect them, and we're going to send our own troops over there to die, to save their lives and to protect them. But then when it comes to our own, we'll go ahead and take theirs. And we'll call it in the name of progress, hope, and our future. At every turn, we find ourselves in a moral and ethical battle, which honestly could almost swallow us up, couldn't it? Feels that way sometimes. But I'm going to tell you this. I don't care. Yeah, times are tough. Without a doubt, life can be difficult. But that's what, a, that's what running a race is all about. Have you ever ran a race? Did it feel good? I'm not a real fan of running. I, 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 I was running there for a while, but I couldn't for certain reasons lately. But I, I've never been a real big fan of running. You know why? Because it's really hard. <laughs> you, you ever get those side aches? You run, you're like, Ugh. And you're trying to run and you're like, you ever get those? And it hurts. You know, and if you happen to be on a track team or something, your coach is going, run through the pain! And if you're in military, don't you dare stop. I mean, it's not easy to run a race. But unfortunately, that's what we are called to do today. And I want you to know that even as Paul the Apostle, and I'm going to wrap this up, I have a whole other section. I think I'll just finish it tonight. But the Apostle Paul's looking at it going, you know what? Yeah, there's a tough times ahead, Timothy. Sure, you're not going to have a, a, a walk in a rose garden. I understand that it's difficult, but Timothy, you're young in the faith. You have so many years to serve the Lord. Don't let the devil steal that. Don't let him take from you what only God gave you. Man, you alone can release it and let it go. Only you can choose to let other people ruin you and wreck your life. Run that race, Timothy. Run it and run it to win. Don't settle for just getting through it. Man, truly experience the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend time in His Word. Get on your knees in prayer. Listen to God. Not, don't just talk to God. Let him do a work in your life every day. And when you see the, the current events across the screen, and when you're recognizing, seeing what's going on in the world in which you live, don't be so surprised. As a matter of fact, pick up your Bible and hold it just a little closer. And realize that there's a God in heaven that isn't going to leave you there. And he isn't going to forsake you. That he's coming back for you and that he loves you. And that he wants to meet your needs. And that he wants you to shine in the darkness. God help us today. God help us to truly run the race and to run it to win. I learned a memory verse last year, preacher. I learned one. Let me ask you, if you took one lap around the track in preparation, if you took one lap around the track in preparation for... A big race. 
Would you be ready for it? Would you be ready? No, you wouldn't. Neither would I. And you want to know something? We need to do a little better job of getting to know him. Spending time in his house and his word and his work. Let's do our best. Let's not just run the race. Let's win it. Let's run to win. Father, we come to you. We thank you for your love and grace in our life. And 